welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. I'm Karin Gervert, and um, I'm the arts editor at MIA. And uh, this is the interview we're doing is a part of the Suicide Hotline Transparency Project, which was born out of the belief that creating transparency and public access around suicide hotline intervention and call tracing policies should be a priority. And um, we're interviewing Sarah Davido from the Wildflower Alliance Warmline. And the project that we're doing includes uh, Beyond These podcasts includes um, other ways that you can um, participate where we have a poll around um, uh, perceptions of, of uh, intervention policies and suicide hotlines. We have a directory of hotlines that we're trying to make that uh, collects hotlines that do not trace or intervene without consent. And you can visit Madden America's website to find out more ways to participate. Um, also, don't want to forget, because I am the arts editor, that there is um, a call for art out around um, suicidal distress, re-envisioning suicidal distress. It's called Careful Gestures, so that call for art is out there, too. So I just wanted to put all that out there up front um, in this interview before Sarah introduces herself. Um, welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me as well. So I am a part of the Wildflower Alliance leadership team, which used to be known as the Western Mass Recovery Learning Community. And part of that is a peer support line that we have, but we also have a number of other offerings throughout our community. In addition to that, I'm also uh, a founding member of the Hearing Voices USA Board of Directors, and I love to write and uh, publish a number of articles on Madden America as well. I, I like to think of myself as a writer, filmmaker, activist, and a mom. Wonderful, wonderful. That's quite the. Uh, that's quite a lot of uh, things going on there. Mom and artist, writer, and the Hearing Voices Network too. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful resource. So um, how did you arrive at your work as a community leader in this in the Wildflower Alliance, um, uh, the, the Warm Line specifically? You know, that's such a, a long story depending on where I start from, so I'm going to try and shorten it up. I guess I will say that I, you know, as somebody who has a psychiatric history but spent a lot of years trying to figure out what to make of that and what my place would be in the world, I actually found myself failed by the conventional mental health system. And really what I learned from that was, hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you're going through. And so I had to keep looking for other ways to get support and figure myself out. And so I actually started working in a clinical role in the mental health system, which I think a lot of people do, but they don't admit to as a way to try and figure themselves out and you know, I actually was quite successful in terms of the praise I got for the job I was doing, even in the absence of having any clinical degrees. But when I hit a point in my life where I decided to come out with my psychiatric history, I found myself very not so welcomed in that environment anymore. And that's also a long story for another time. But I ended up finding myself out of that job in a time that happened to coincide with the visioning process for what would become the Wildflower Alliance. And a part of that vision was having a peer support line. So there's certainly a number of other pieces to it, but the peer support line was 
a piece of it pretty early on. And, and actually, I should say, you know, all of that was happening between 2005 and then 2007 when the Wildflower Alliance became funded. But the peer support line actually happened more, uh, although it was a piece of the original vision, it really didn't take shape until 2012 at the same time that our peer respite was taking shape. And how is the, the wildflower warm line, how, how is that um, different? How is that unique? And, and also, you know, what, what services does that offer? So actually, one thing I just want to say is, that, so you're referring to it as a warm line. And just for whatever it's worth, I think it's a really interesting word because I think there's warm lines and hot lines. And the implication is that the hot lines deal with the serious crises in the warm lines, you know, maybe something a little or a few steps down from that, when in fact, I think that we have found that people call our line in a pretty, you know, a lot of distress. And sometimes specifically because they have found that calling hotlines when they're in that much distress gets them into trouble. They've choose these other lines instead. So we refer to it as a peer support line. I don't mean to be criticizing your language. I just think it's an important point. I think the differentiation of, of how people engage with warm line versus hotline or peer support lines, it, it really does change, you know, who and why people come to you. So it's important um, to definitely mention that too. So thank you. Sure. And, and you're not the only one who refers to them as, as warm lines. And I think, in fact, we're listed on warmline.org or, you know, some of these other resources. I just think for me, it becomes an issue of almost of internalized oppression of, of consenting to the idea that we're somehow lesser than. And so we've tried to push back on that. So as far as what the peer support line offers, you know, I think we try to be as flexible as we can in terms of what people need. Sometimes it might be that somebody is calling from the local area and really looking for a particular resource. And so our peer support line workers would be expected to explore that with them. They don't have to be experts. You know, I think that we get ourselves into a lot of trouble in this world by saying, oh, you come here for the expert that has all the answers. Our peer support line workers do not have all the answers, but they are willing to explore with people, share what they do know, and explore beyond that. So sometimes it's about resources, but sometimes people are calling from further away, and while we still might be able to find some resources online with them, it's uh, not necessarily as straightforward. And so uh, you know, honestly, a lot of the time, it's really just someone to talk to, someone to talk to who is not going to try and take anything away from somebody, uh, you know, not try to take their liberty, not try to coerce them into doing a particular thing. There was actually a new listing that went up on a particular website recently about peer support lines. And in it somewhere, it said that peer support lines can transfer you over to a crisis line. And I I had our I had our line removed. I said, please remove our line until you change that language because I don't want people to think that if they call us, we're just at the ready to press some button and transfer them to a crisis line. It's just not how it works. So the idea is that you can call and say whatever you need to say to us and we're going to listen, we're going to talk, we're going to ask you, you know, what, what that means for you or what you want to do with that. And, you know, I think... There's also an element of advocacy in there. So uh, if someone is trying to figure out what their rights are or where they can go to make sure that they're getting heard, we'll also work with them on that. Yeah, that kind of leads me into uh, the next question, which is really um, your philosophy around caring for 
people who call um, community members uh, who are experiencing crisis? Sure. You know, I think I, I always struggle a little bit with these questions because they there is sort of an ask to to boil something down into something really easy to talk about, and I'm not sure it's that easy. But I guess what I would say is the the philosophy is that we are all humans trying to navigate this world, and we all have gained wisdom in our travels, and that the most effective way to support someone else is to rely on your own wisdom and also just be willing to support them to figure out what their answers are. And so, you know, it's sort of a, a long philosophy, I guess, but it, you know, it comes down to all these other ideas that we hear all the time in the peer-to-peer world about trusting that people are the experts of themselves, which doesn't necessarily mean that they have all the answers, but that somewhere in them, they have more information about themselves and what they need than anybody else does. And that we, yeah, with our questions, we might help them sort of peel away the layers and get to that wisdom that they have inside themselves and figure out what it means for them. But I think, you know, I think our philosophy is very consistent with things like intentional peer support, which is one of actually our four core trainings that we require of all employees, including the people working on the peer support line. Our other core trainings are a three-day anti-oppression training and then a uh, alternatives to suicide training and a hearing voices training. And all of those ultimately root back to these values of autonomy, the importance of people retaining or regaining personal power and control in their lives, and the really power of, of supporting people to make a meaning of what's happening in their life and what isn't, isn't working in it. Absolutely. The, the peer support line, uh, Wildflower specifically, um, you know, offers a, a, the community something that, you know, is outside of what most mental health uh, crisis lines offer, which is, you know, this awareness of the autonomy of the individual. How does it feel to be providing this necessary support for individuals who would otherwise not be able to access this care? I mean, it feels essential, you know, but I also think sometimes it feels really frustrating because there's not enough of it, you know. So we have a peer support line that operates for a handful of hours each day, and it is answered by one person. So if you compare that to, say, some of the broader crisis lines where there's dozens of people available and the calls automatically route to the next person if one person's busy and, you know, we are competing in that way and the lack of access can be so frustrating. So uh, it feels like an essential thing to be providing. I'm very glad that we're providing it and I feel really good about that, but I'm always bumping into the reality that when you have something that's different and, uh, you know, hard to get to, it can also cause frustration for people. So I, I guess I just, you know, at least especially recently, I've been really feeling the frustration with our peer respite, with our peer support line, with so many things of, of it being too scarce of a resource. But at the same time, you know, as, as we've already talked about, I think the, the ability to provide a space, a virtual space, essentially, where people can, can say whatever they need to say and have someone on the other end of the line who's not going to be freaked out by it and not be ready to just sort of shuffle them off is really powerful. You know, I think, I think too much of the mental health system functions by lying in wait for when someone needs their power taken away from them, 
whether we're talking about the crisis or emergency services or whatever, they kind of say, well, if you're not bad enough, we don't have anything for you right now, but we're watching the moment you get bad enough, then we're going to take some power away and we're going to put you over here. And I think I feel really proud to be able to offer supports that just don't work like that. I can sense the frustration around the, the not being able to offer more about what you're doing right now with what you have is absolutely essential. And so many, so much gratitude for the work that you and everyone at the Wildflower does. It leads us directly into this next question, really, of, uh, um, you know, from your perspective, um, what are the biggest challenges in this work? So, uh, again, you know, of course, access. And, uh, you know, I know we're talking mostly about the peer support line, but the peer respite and the peer support line, they're not the same thing, but they function out of the same building. And so I think about them both together a lot. And the peer support or the, uh, the peer respite has three bedrooms in a region that has, I think, something like eight acute psychiatric units with I don't know how many beds. And so we're supposed to be proving ourselves as hospital diversion or an alternative to hospital. But when you're always full and then there's all these psychiatric beds around you, it gets really hard. Sometimes it feels like we've been set up for failure. And I would say similar with the peer support line at times. If you give someone just a little bit of resource, but not enough to really have it take root or sometimes not enough to pay people to work there consistently, then it can be a bit of a setup for failure. So while we take whatever we can get, sometimes I wonder if, if just giving these little dribbles of funding sometimes just makes it look like, oh, that's not an effective approach, so we don't have to fund it anymore. So I worry about that. Um, I think also, also we are just, you know, one little drip in this, in this psychiatric system. And so whenever people come to us, whether it's on the peer support line or anywhere else, they've already come and been through, in many instances, not always, so many other parts of the psychiatric system. And so we have to work to gain trust and support people to understand how we're different. And I, you know, I don't begrudge uh, people their need for us to work, for them to trust us. I think that's totally fair given the world we're living in. And it's certainly a challenge just to be able to get to the conversations that are the most useful because people have been so harmed in the systems that we're in, then that, that's tough. And then, you know, the hiring for the peer support line has been interestingly challenging. I have found that many, many more people are energized about working in person, but struggle and get drained working when they can't see somebody. And so you'd think in some ways it would be easier for people, but people just energetically don't feel as fed. And so We've had some more turnover on the peer support line at times. And I think we certainly have people who appreciate doing it, but it it gets uh, it gets hard. And and you know part of also what makes it hard, if I'm to be completely honest, is anything that happens in a online or phone space also attracts people who want to misuse it. So we've had our share of heavy breathing calls and and other things that are taking up space and just not respecting what we're trying to offer. Yeah, and, and how can, um, in your perspective too, considering all these things, these challenges that you're talking about now, is, is how can listeners of this MIA podcast um, 
how can they uh, support your work and be in solidarity with with uh, your organization and, and organizers like you? So, I mean, certainly we take donations. That's always great. We really we dream of finding wealthy funders who can support us to to really expand without having to do the endless grant dance and uh, you know so many funding sources don't offer annualized funding they'll offer seed funding or what have you we just recently raised our rates across the board of what we're paying people because we just couldn't continue to justify paying so little and so we're actually operating at a deficit at the moment so there's that but I think also just being someone who's really invested in the integrity of these lines and as more interest pops up around them, often with interest, uh, whether it be peer respite, peer support lines, or what have you, when when people get ready to fund things more, they often only kind of have a surface understanding of it. And so these are moments when things become co-opted or are really at risk of of losing their integrity, of becoming something else. You know, the the peer support line that does have a button that they press that just transfers you right over to crisis, things like that. And so I think what I would ask of listeners is be someone who helps us hold that integrity. When you hear those projects going off course and becoming something else, be someone who speaks up, be someone who who helps us hold what the, the vision is because Unfortunately, although the peer support line I'm a part of is completely different in terms of its funding and who's working there than another peer support line in another state or area, if that peer support line is is using that name, a peer support line or warm line or what have you, and they're doing things that are not consistent with peer support values, then people will experience trauma from that. They will They will take that and they'll believe that we're all like that. And so there's an importance that we band together across this country and beyond in really pushing back on co-optation and just making sure that, that these offerings are what they're supposed to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really important thing to, to be aware of. And, and um, the, the, the one thing that I thought about a lot while I was doing this project was um, this idea when the 988 number you know, is coming out and uh, this move towards lines being funded if they do have that button where, where, or, and not being funded if they don't. And that being, um, you know, the new norm for peer support lines coming online in the world today, um, you know, they'll come into a place where if they're not going by NSPO, Standards. They'll, they'll come into the world where those standards are what will get them funded. And if lines are struggling and they are trying to stick to their integrity around the trauma and the, the, the you know, violence that can occur when, um, you know, police are called and, and these other things, you know, they, they may decide that um, in order to keep on, they need to accept these standards and get the funding rather than this being able to stick with their integrity and um, like like struggle with the funding. So both those things, like a, this idea that if a line is, is in a vulnerable place, 
you hold them to their integrity. And then also finding ways that we can support lines like yours and stuff like that, that in a financial way that that's, um, doesn't come with this caveat. Right. Yeah, that, that caveat is devastating. It only takes one time, you know, one time that you step over that line and, and other people hear about it. And why would they trust? Why, why should they trust if, if we're willing to cross that line? And I think that so much of that roots back to the reality that we as a society need to develop some tolerance of loss and facing the reality that we don't control everything. I think, you know, again, the mental health system is kind of poised all the time to figure out when they need to take control. And unfortunately, even though the research tells us that when they're taking control, often the outcomes are worse down the line, all they see is, oh, today I stopped this person. And then we can just go on from there. And I think, you know, I've, I've said to many people, like, there are two paths here. One where we except we can't control other people, but we try to create as much space for them to be in with us so we can figure things out together. And sometimes some people will be lost on that path, or we can follow this other path where we just watch for any sign that someone's about to do something we don't want them to do. And we try to take that control and prevent them from doing it as long as possible. And I, and I really think we lose people down that path far more than we lose them down the other. Yeah, I, I um, agree with that um, and, and have, have found that to be such an important uh, shift in perspective um, when you're, um, uh, you know, facing the suffering um, of others and yourself. It seems that, you know, if you're undercutting the root, um, you know, and going for this, uh, this temporary control of the moment, um, like you're saying, you're, you're going down a path that, that does end in more harm and more suffering. Um, but if uh, you have this, um, I guess it's not like a peace or, or a tolerance, but, but the, the understanding and awareness that suffering is a part of life and loss is a part of life, that, that, and that you're just in this um, together with others. Um, and that that's just a fact and that you can do as much really, as you can. That's a really important point, the sort of what is a part of life? Because I think that part of what happens is people are projecting their fears of death and their discomfort with death onto everything and everyone around them. And if we could get to a place where we accept that pain and death are both a part of life, then we may be able to sit a little easier with people who are in some of those spaces and not just desperately try and control them. I wonder uh, if you could expand a little bit upon on on how you see you, lines like yours um, that approach things so differently and so carefully um, around empowerment. Um, how lines like yours are interrupting this this cycle of abusive care and the cycle of entrenching and, and reinforcing oppression as it exists in our lives. Sure. Well, oppression is such a a rich and multi-layered topic, and I think there's so many different forms of it. I think when I think of psychiatric oppression, I think I was actually just having a conversation earlier with someone today about how how even the most quote unquote woke people, the people most invested in anti-oppression work, still don't get psychiatric oppression. They still somehow think that 
oh, but that particular group of people we need to figure out how to control because we want to be safe. And also they've been fed these lines that not only will controlling that group of people keep you safe, but also if you want to be a good person and everybody wants to be a good person, then you need to make sure that they get the care that they need and anything less is just not okay. So people have bought into that line, even people who are on the front lines of anti-racism and other anti-oppression work, they've bought that pretty fully. And so there's that challenge. But then there's also the reality that the psychiatric system has been used as a tool of oppression to reinforce all these other forms of oppression. So, of course, as as we know, black and brown people are much more likely to be subjected to orders of force or when they're restrained, or more likely to be restrained, and if restrained, more likely to be injured, so on and so forth. We can pull that apart for all these different marginalized groups. And so it gets really, really complicated. But I think, you know, one of the most terrible things that happens to people when they do reach out for support is something that you already alluded to, which is they look for support based on all the harms they've experienced in the world, all the oppression they've experienced, all the power they've lost, only to be told by the mental health system that actually what needs to be fixed is inside you. Yeah, it's you. You're the problem. You're broken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've experienced that myself when I've gotten up and I've shared this story of being a childhood survivor of sexual and physical abuse, of being a rape survivor, and still had people say like, all right, well, you know, we hear the trauma, but we're still going to refer to you as mentally ill. And when I hear that, I hear them giving a pass to all these people who have hurt me and still saying like, you know, regardless of all that, there's still something going on in your head. But it's a real bind. And, and I will say it's a bind I'm experiencing very up close and personal right now because my one of my kids is having a really, really hard time both in school with some bullying and then uh, I'm going through a divorce and there's a lot of complexity in that situation. And it's really clear that those are the two things that my child is struggling with. But we're powerless to fix this school system that's awful And we've been pretty powerless to fix some of the conditions in the divorce that we're dealing with. And so even I am like, you know, should I be considering medication, psychiatric drugs for my child who's struggling so much because I can't fix these societal conditions and I need them to somehow have, I don't know, some protection to move through that. And so it's, it's really painful to see that happen. And I think so many people get stuck in that place of Things are so terrible and I can't control them. All I can control is maybe I could numb myself out a little or maybe I can, you know, make myself forget these things. And I think that's that's so painful. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely am, am hearing all of that and, and have been in a situation myself feeling um, that way around, you know, well, if the world is just so messed up at the moment and, and I don't have... The, the the support is just not there and i and the way of changing the world to better suit caring for me in this moment as systems are so you know um, corrupt and and filled with systemic oppression around this like what if like the right choice is to you know go back on an antipsychotic or do this that or the other thing just to just because i have no other choice right 
I know, I know if I were in a different situation, in a different world, a different culture, I could possibly live and thrive. You know, as far as the peer support line goes, we don't have any more power than anybody else to fix some of those societal conditions that people are experiencing when they call us. But we can validate that they're real. We can be one of the places people can call, one of the very few places where we're not saying, oh, no, no, it's still, it's really about you. And I think that can be really important. And we also really support people to challenge some of the societal norms. That's integrated into all of our core trainings, that, that it's okay to challenge gender norms or expectations of what you should be doing or producing in the world, uh, who you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to define your problems. We create that space and it still doesn't fix those societal conditions, but it can, similar in some some weird way to psychiatric drugs, et cetera, it can create a little bit of a buffer or a little bit more protection against dealing with those societal conditions. If you know that you have some people somewhere who, who get it, who hear you, who have your back in that way. Absolutely. And, and I have to say, I've, I've um, interacted with Wildflower supports, uh, the support, uh, the peer support line and the peer support groups that you all offer there. And it is, um, just to validate the the wonderful um, empowerment and change around um, interacting with your organization, I've experienced it personally as a as a psychiatric survivor and and as my journey coming um, out of a, a bipolar label and and the harm that was done to me, um, I I came to you, uh, your organization, and um, it is no, in no small part given me exactly what you've just described. So a uh, thank you to you, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's, it's helpful to hear. Sometimes when we get really stuck in the muck of the day-to-day hard stuff, there are times when I'm like, are, are we actually impacting anyone? Am I just, you know, is that just wishful thinking? So it's always good to hear. <laughs> Your organization helped walk me back into the world, walked my art back into the world, walked my, like, my dignity and, and my empowerment and, and just my love of self. You were, your organization was a really big part of how that all happened. This care work, you know, it's so, so important. And I think you and others deserve so much gratitude for what you do. And, and in no small part because you're facing all these challenges, too, around, you know, saying these things and, and putting this stuff out in the world, like, not only just financially and finding the funding, but it's not common knowledge like you've said like even the most woke people can't wrap their mind around psychiatric abuse and oppression so i was going to say i I actually am uh, experiencing some pretty direct consequences from it at the moment uh again with my divorce uh we just had our pre-trial and hopefully this is not too personal but uh we had our pre-trial and and in the pre-trial the way it works is you have to say what exhibits you're going to use and what witnesses you're going to call and my ex has listed some of my articles and presentations as an exhibit to try and demonstrate that I have wild ideas about psychiatry and mental health and all this, uh, and therefore might question my ability to parent my kids. So it's uh, it's pretty intense. Um, you know, we definitely are putting ourselves out there in ways that feel so important, but also because of the way society functions, because of the beliefs that are so closely held, even though research and experience supports what we're doing, it can uh, come back to bite us. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry you're experiencing that and also hope that you have support 
much solidarity for you there and hope, hope for, for a good outcome. Thanks. Yeah, I actually, I talked to Bob Whitaker when this all first started. I'm like, maybe I should take my articles down. And then I decided, no, I'm, I'm going to live with my truth regardless of where it brings. But uh, I'm just trying to ride that out at this point. <laughs> I have said a lot, but I think one thing I haven't said is I think, you know, another language thing I'm not super fond of, although I've used it today, is this whole mental health language, because I think it's the sort of opposite side of the coin to mental illness, both of which come from this medicalized place. And if I could push us out of that box and into more of a harm reduction approach, I think that's really important. And that is a philosophy that we do hold to in all of our work, including the peer support line, but I don't think people really understand what harm reduction means. Sure, it can mean, you know, how do we reduce the harm and impact of the terrible things happening around us? That's a piece of it. But I think at its core, what it means is we accept that people are making the choices and struggling with the things they're struggling with and living the lives they're living with and do not seek to change them or identify what's bad and needing to be gotten rid of. And even in the instance of something like suicidal thoughts, I think it's really, really foreign to people to think, actually, the goal might not be to get rid of the suicidal thoughts. There might be really valid reasons someone's having those thoughts. There might be ways in which people value those suicidal thoughts. I remember at a training, a young man said, you know, if all my suicidal thoughts, if all that pain went away, I think I'd lose my art and my music, and I don't want that. So instead of coming at it from that place, in a harm reduction approach, we might say, okay, these suicidal thoughts are a part of this person's life. How do we support them to change their relationship with those thoughts in a way that works better for them? So how do we support them to recognize those thoughts as having a message? or having less power than they do. So I will end with this last question. It's kind of just a, in a few words or in a few sentences, just what the driving point of your work is and its importance and uh, what, what you want listeners to know about providing support on your peer support line. I think so much of what we are struggling with is a loss of power and control in our lives, whether it's a loss of, you know, access or never having had access to meet our basic needs or an actual loss of power in terms of what people are putting onto us or how they're interpreting our experiences or where they're pushing us to go and what, what they're pushing us to do. And I think that so much of what we're trying to do is recognize even the profound loss of power that comes along with someone saying, hey, this is your diagnosis. This is what's wrong with you. And this is what you need to do about it. And making space to say instead, what what has happened to you? What is happening in your life? And what does that mean to you? And, and let's talk about this so we can support you to make that meaning and have that ownership and take that power back. Because if people don't have even that much power to, to explore their own experiences and figure out what they mean to them, then it's it's really challenging to to move forward to a different place so hopefully that's not too abstract but I think underneath everything so much is about realizing how many power imbalances there are in the world supporting people to take what they can back and most of all supporting them to take the power over their own identity and meaning making absolutely absolutely and thank you for that so well said 
So well said. Gosh, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And um, I learned a lot. And um, I, I was uh, it's just, you know, I'm in awe of the work that people like you and other other um, people in this um, movement towards towards this kind of care, uh, this kind of, um, I don't know, solidarity with 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 life and, and suffering and, and working together um, with one another to get through. I just, I'm just in awe of people who are doing this work. So, so thank you. Thank you again for having me. You can support the Wildflower Alliances uh, and the, the peer support line, like uh, Sarah was saying, through donations. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.